Visit Doreen's website at dmurphydoucette.com and click the radio tab to purchase your supplement and dosha questionnaire. It will allow you to know your body dosha and what supplements, vitamins, and minerals your body requires at any given time. You'll receive a report by email that gives you all of the required information. You'll learn which foods give you your required supplements, and you have the option to purchase your report in printed book form and have it mailed directly to you. Visit dmurphydoucette.com today. Every day we take our lives into our own hands when we consume vitamins and supplements. By not knowing the right ones to take or when, we could be doing a disservice to our health, or even worse, could be endangering it. Welcome to your Daily Dose with Doreen Doucette. Now you have a resource to help you use supplements, vitamins, and natural health more safely and effectively. Here is your host, Doreen Doucette. Good morning and welcome to your Daily Dose. For the past few months, most of us have been all consumed with the COVID-19 pandemic. But has this pandemic made us forget that we continue to have a pandemic on racism? Has COVID-19 made us put this issue on the back burner only until a devastating occurrence happens and then it comes to the forefront again? We have over 400 years of deeply rooted racism, oppression, fear, and rage. Today I'd like to speak with an expert in this field and see if there may be a cause and treatment for this pandemic that's called racism. How can we as medical and wellness practitioners play a role in the treatment of this pandemic? And how can we aid in changing this system? I'd like to ask these questions and several more to my guest, Dr. Arthur P. Charamikoli. Dr. Charamikoli holds a doctorate in education and a PhD. He is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. Dr. Chattamikoli is on the facility of International Association of Wellness Practitioners, Global Presence Ambassador, Parenting 2.0, was formerly the Chief Medical Officer of SoundMinds.org and is also in private practice. Dr. Charamikoli has been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for several years, lecturer for the American Cancer Society, Chief Psychologist at Metro West Medical Center, Director of the Metro West Counseling Center and of the Alternative Medicine Division of Metro West Wellness Center in Framingham, Massachusetts. In addition to treating patients, Dr. Chattamigo Lee has lectured at Harvard Health Services, Boston College Counseling Center, the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, the Revelry Group in Idaho, as well as being a consultant to several major corporations in the Boston area. He has appeared on CNN, Fox News Boston, Comcast TV, New England Cable News, Good Morning America Weekend, The O'Reilly Report, and other shows. He has been a weekly radio guest on Your Healthy Family on Sirius Satellite Radio and Holistic Health Today. He has been interviewed on The People's Pharmacy, The Gary Null Show, and more than two dozen other radio programs. 
Dr. Charmika Lee is the author of The Triumph of Diversity, Rejoice in and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Humankind, The Soulful Leader, Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy, The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience, The Curse of the Capable, The Hidden Challenges to a Balanced, Healthy, High-Achieving Life, Performance Addiction, The Dangerous New Syndrome and How to Stop It from Ruining Your Life, and The Power of Empathy, A Practical Guide to Creating Intimacy, Self-Understanding, and Lasting Love, which is now published in eight languages. His first book, Treatment of Abuse and Addiction, A Holistic Approach, was selected as Book of the Month by the Psychotherapy Book News. He is also the co-author of Beyond the Influence, Understanding and Defeating Alcoholism, and founder of the Empathy and Goodness Project on Facebook, and Healthy Empathetic Achievement on LinkedIn. He has also authored the Anti-Anxiety App, Anti-Depression App, and workbooks Transforming Anxiety into Joy, a practical workbook to gain emotional freedom and changing your inner voice, a journey through depression to truth and love in collaboration with soundminds.org. Dr. Chattamikali lives in a suburb of Boston with his wife of 35 years. He enjoys cycling, spinning, and other sports, and his favorite activity is spending time with his wife, daughters, son-in-laws, and beautiful grandchildren Carmela and Ariana along the southern coast of Maine. If you would like to contact Dr. Charumikali, his website is www.balanceyoursuccess.com. His Twitter handle is D-O-C-A-P-C. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thank you, Doreen. Good to be with you. Thank you. I've read this particular book when we began talking about doing the interview. Um, I went through it quickly, and then I did read through it again more slowly. And I'm not going to say that this is a good book, but I am going to say this is an excellent book, and I would recommend everyone to read this book. Now, let me begin by asking you, what led you to writing a book on diversity? Well, Doreen, this was really a sequel to a book I wrote about a year ago as well called The Soulful Leader, Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy. And I wrote a book on leadership and diversity because I'm so concerned about what's happening in our country, in the U.S. and throughout the world, really, but particularly the U.S. because we have um, a difficulty with leadership politically in the corporate world and also the rates of prejudice and hate crimes have gone up exponentially. Anti-Semitism has increased dramatically. Muslim hate crimes have increased 67% in the last three years. Racism is at an all-time high. Um, Prejudice against LBGTQ individuals is significant. And uh, and also, um, prejudice and harassment of women in the workplace has been significant as well. So we're at a time in our society that concerns me greatly, and that's why I wrote this book to try to help people understand the origin of prejudice and also the benefits of diversity rather than being afraid of people that don't look like you on the surface and then find the commonality with all of us together and form more of a cohesive community, cohesive nation than we have at the moment. 
Now, in your book, um, you had you state that you had a Latino client um, that stated the following: If you are Jewish, brown, black, or any other than heterosexual, you are no longer wanted in America. What are your thoughts on that statement at this present time? Well, there was a Kaiser poll taken last year that indicated that Latino and blacks feel less safe in the society than they have ever felt in their lifetimes when these are adults. So my take on it is it's real. I mean, racism is pervasive in the United States and people of color have been discriminated against significantly, especially since the rhetoric in this country has been very damaging to people who are not white, not white Americans, they're not white male Americans. So it's real, not make-believe, it's studies have indicated it, and certainly we all see it day to day. We know that, you know, black men have been killed in the street by police officers, and, you know, I treat police officers and detectives and consult the police departments over many years, and most police officers would not act like they did with Mr. Floyd, but... It's happening. There's discrimination and it's very clear. And people are very afraid. One of my one of my clients who's black, his ten year old son said to him, they literally go out for ice cream and his son said that we probably ought to not go, Daddy, because people don't like us, they can shoot us. Now this is a ten year old who's not sitting there watching the news, but you know, what walking in and out of his family room and probably hearing it from other kids, but he got the feeling that this is not a place for him to be. And I've heard the same uh, sentiments from Chinese American students, from Latinos, that they, they don't feel like they're going to be viewed objectively anymore because of the hate speech that's so prevalent from our leaders at this time. Mm-hmm. Why would you think that the Latino American and the black populations are reporting that they feel that they're in more danger now than they were five years ago? Well, I think the current administration uh, has been very demeaning of color. And I, and I think that, you know, the, the blocking of Muslims coming in with the anti-Muslim ban and then calling Mexicans misogynists and rapists and the border wall thing about these people coming in who are all drug dealers. It, it's, and now look at what's happening with Chinese Americans calling this COVID-19 the Kung flu, which is another racist comment. So these, these kind of statements made by leaders make people feel very uneasy because we know, we know again through credible research that when leaders talk this way, filters down to the population and this exposure to hate speech desensitizes people to groups that are suffering. It makes them feel less compassionate and empathic toward people that are suffering. So leadership has an effect. Leadership has an effect profoundly to many people and it brings out a lot of the hate mongers, the people that may have felt that what they say wouldn't be permissible in a society of civility. But now when people are talking this way, especially on a leadership level, they feel like they can come out of the woodwork. You know, David Duke, the head of the white supremacist uh, society, said that this is, one of the, this is the best time in their history because he feels so supported by this particular administration. Mm-hmm. What do you think the origins of these prejudices are in their societies? Well, I think they're complicated. I think old conditioning is a way that we come into adulthood with certain prejudices because we, we listen to what our parents, coaches, teachers say early on, especially parents in, in the family. So if you have people making racist comments or comments about Jews or Muslims, um, children don't have the faculties 
the brain development to examine these things comprehensively. So they just believe them. I had a 56 year old man who said to me that, uh, you, you know, dogs don't like black people. And I, and I asked him why did he, or how did he come to believe this? And he told me that at the end of his street, there was a black family and his mother said, you know, don't, don't bring the dog down there. Don't bring our dogs down there. They had two labs because dogs don't like black people. And I asked him, did you ever bring the dogs down there? He said, no. I said, have you ever seen a black person with a dog? And he said, no. And he said, oh, you're, you're making me feel uncomfortable now. And I said, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but our job is to uncover the truth. And we all learn things early on about ourselves and about others that are distorted. And I think our responsibility as adults is to find out the facts. So here's a man who's an adult in midlife, a CEO, and he's a good person. He grew up believing this. And just, it was encoded in his mind. He probably heard it many, many times by the time he was an adolescent, but it was never examined. Prejudices are unexamined, ignorant, ignorant positions, and not an ignorant in the sense that someone, someone is ignorant, but it means a lack of knowledge not knowing what the truth is and not taking the time to find out what the truth is. So what I'm trying to advocate in, in this book, Irene, is unlearning. Unlearning the distortions we've had about ourselves growing up and about others. And that's the only way we can change this societal trend toward hate and discrimination. I found it quite interesting in the book where you wrote about um, the differences and the impact that mother and father would have on the different, the, the children, the, the males or the females. Do you want to explain a bit about that? Well, I think, you know, we grew up obviously recognizing the differences in gender. And one of the studies that, that I cited in the book was that some of, the diff, some of the discrimination that men have toward women actually came from mothers, which surprised me in that particular study. Mm -hmm. Because if a mother... Is, is tolerant of abusive behavior from a father and actually makes excuses for that, that person's behavior, then a son is going to believe that that's, that's permissible. That's the way you act as a male. So it isn't just fathers who can create discrimination in terms of gender. It's also, it's also mothers. And we know now that about 42% of women working in the business communities in America say they face harassment on a daily basis. And, you know, that, that's a very poor statistic, obviously, and it, but it's still happening. It's still happening. But among young people, because young people under 40 tend to be more diverse. You know, I tell a story in the book of a young woman who's a college senior, very excellent student, and she, she was a, a, did an internship at a major 500, 500, Fortune 500 company, and it was down to her and two other interns about who would be hired when they graduate. Well, one of those days, she was working in her cube, and one of the managers came over and pinched her rear end, and she stood up and said to him, take your hand off of me, or I'll put you through that window, and she said it very loud and used a few expletives as well. Mm -hmm. um, of course, he didn't realize that she has, she's a third-degree black belt, even though that wasn't relevant at the time, but she came into my office, and she said, you know, Dr. C, I'm, I'm definitely not going to get that job. I said, what makes you think that? And she said, well... You know, she told me the story. She said, everybody heard it in the office, so there's no way that they're going to hire me. The next day, she got a, a call from the CFO, and he said I wanted, he wanted to see her. And would she come in first thing in the morning? She came in, and he said, you have the job. He said, she said, I have the job. Did you know what happened yesterday? 
He said, the reason you have the job is because of what happened yesterday, because we don't want people like that in our organization. And that particular manager is on probation right now. And if that behavior happens again, he'll be fired. We, yeah. we want to hire you because of your courage, limiting that behavior. Now, that may be somewhat unusual in the corporate world, but that's the trend we're hoping for. She mm-hmm. stood up and had a voice and was not willing to tolerate this. On the other hand, what if she was a 52-year-old single mom with three children she needed a job to pay the rent? Then it becomes very difficult, and you see people in a position where they have to stay in these toxic situations because mm-hmm. they can't make ends meet. And that's a very difficult position. Yeah. When, when we're looking at the prejudice of, of individuals, what is it doing to these people physically? What is their wellness like because, because people have a prejudice against them? Well, Doreen, when people have prejudice, they feel tense. When we feel tense, we have anxiety and we can elicit the stress response. When we elicit the stress response, we, we produce the damaging hormone cortisol. What does cortisol do to our system? I mean, cortisol causes negative thinking. It causes weight gain. It causes inflammation, hair loss. It breaks down muscle tissue. It causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety, and memory loss. So it has many, many negative consequences. One of the key consequences of cortisol when you produce stress in the face of prejudice is that it reduces our empathic range and we become very narrow black and white thinkers and it makes people think in repetitive, obsessive ways. So our creativity, our ability to think, is hurt significantly, as well as having all those damaging consequences. When we relate in a non-prejudicial way, and we give and receive empathy, meaning that empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It means we go beyond the surface into the heart and soul of another person. And what happens when we give and receive empathy? We produce oxytocin, the near miracle neurotransmitter. It's what women produce when they're pregnant. What is oxytocin? It reduces anxiety and actually lowers cortisol levels. It helps us live longer. It helps us recover from illness and injury. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being. And it protects against heart disease, reduces inflammation. Most importantly, reduces the craving for addictive substances. That's where the weight gain piece comes in. And it creates bonding and an increase in trust for others. It decreases fear and it creates a sense of security and basically it makes people open for love and connection. So we have one way of relating that causes a brain change that has many, many positive consequences. We have another way of relating when prejudice comes into play, which causes tension and anxiety, which produces many negative consequences. You also spoke of the benefits of being in diverse environments. And and would you like to explain some of what those would be? Well, when you're in a diverse environment, we know, you know, empathy is the heart of diversity. Because, again, it it allows us to go beyond the surface of what we see and and into the real character of human beings. But empathic communities, when we have empathy and diversity in the school system, for instance, the kids tend to be, have better cognitive skills, they have better critical thinking, they have improved problem solving. And when we're in environments of diversity, <clears throat> with empathy at the heart of the way people communicate, even in countries and communities, people are healthier, happier, they're less prone to discriminate, they have higher levels of self-esteem, and, they're far, and children are far less likely to bully others. 
Because if you grow up with only, say children grow up in a small town where there's only white kids. And as soon as they see a black face or a Latino face, they, we all have a tendency to react negatively to unfamiliar faces until we have more exposure. When you grow up in a diverse environment, when children grow up in a diverse environment, they're growing up with people of all colors, black, white, yellow. And so there's no, there's no fear because they have friends of different origins, different ethnicities, different religions. Diverse populations produce diverse ideas. And diverse ideas make up, expand our world. It opens us up to, the, to an enlarged environment, a larger perspective rather than a small, narrow perspective. So when, when people are in interfaith communities, does this help to reduce prejudice and hate? Oh, yes. You know, I interviewed uh, many theologians in interfaith communities, and I was so impressed because here I am in my office meeting with a Sikh, um, a, a rabbi, a minister, a priest, a Catholic priest, and they're all getting along terrifically because they place a great emphasis on understanding religious perspectives. And they really want to learn from each other because they don't assume that their religion knows everything or their religion is completely correct. So they're open to learning from each other. The other thing that I noticed about interfaith communities is they really focus a great deal on the uniqueness of the individual. And of course, that's what empathy does. It focuses on the unique experiences of each individual. And, you know, they don't walk up to each other and say, hi, Muslim or hi, Catholic or hi, Jew. They realize that within every group, there are, there are differences because every human being is unique. And I think if we had that attitude in our society right now, we, we could counter this force against discrimination and against only being with people that look and act and come from the same background as you do. Um, one part in your book that, that I was taken with is um, the mother who had lost her son to a drug overdose. Her son had purchased mm -hmm. a drug from a Chinese person, and in turn, she became very, very bitter. And she didn't only become mm -hmm. bitter towards one person, it was to all of the Chinese people that she blamed. Mm -hmm. this, is, mm -hmm. is this not exactly what is going on right now with the COVID-19? Because it, it started um, supposedly in a part of China. You know, we have a high population of Chinese throughout Canada. I'm sure you do in, in the U.S. as well. Some of them, yes. many of them, who have never even been to China, but now um, they feel that anytime they go out in public, they're being looked down upon or, or people are being nasty to them because they're Chinese. Yes. You know, the, the, the reality is, Doreen, that Asian girls, even before COVID, even before COVID, Asian girls 15 to 24 years old had suicide rates 39% higher than their white peers. Amazing. And one of the reasons, it's called minority myth, one of the reasons that was happening is that Asian kids, when they come into schools, people expect, just administrators expect them to perform on very high levels, Chinese kids, Korean kids. And, and they feel an inordinate pressure to be exceptional. One of my clients from China, I, I used to do Skype sessions with her. She came to Sloan, the Sloan School of Business at MIT, and she said, you know, in China, it was so hard to be a girl. You had, the only value you could have was being very intelligent. Said, the first thing my two roommates do is they want to take, when I come to Boston, is they wanted to take me to a mall to, to get my hair done and, and, to buy some, and for me to buy different clothes. 
So in America, you not only have to be female as a female, you don't have to. You not only have to be exceptionally bright. You have to be pretty, thin, and you have to dress a certain way. She's. I feel more pressure here than I felt in China. So that that's that's the beginning of a Chinese American experience. Now I have another client, Chinese American. She was born in Boston. She's never been to China. Uh, and she was putting out the garbage the other night and, and neighbors were yelling her, go back to where you belong, go back to where you came from. And they were, uh, you know, demeaning her and doing the Kung flu uh, phrase. And, and, and she felt broken hearted. She said, because I've never faced any of this in Boston. Now, all of a sudden, because I, I look the way I look, I'm being prejudiced against and, you know, making me feel very insecure, very, very similar to the way Latinos and Blacks feel right now in this society. Yes, it, it is a it's a very sad thing that we have to that we have to blame everyone. And and I think because emotions are running high right now, we that's that's just a basic it's a, it's a basic that we need someone or something to blame. What what do you see? Yes, and sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I'm just wondering, what do you see as the link between um, wellness and diversity? And what changes would you like to see, especially in the medical profession, that's going to explicitly address this? Well, I think in the medical profession, we know from studies as well that uh, there is prejudice. And black people, Latino people, obviously get less care than white people. And I don't think it's because physicians and nurses are inherently prejudiced. I think a lot of times it's unconscious. Um, I worked in a hospital for 25 years. I was a chief psychologist, head of a department. And, and I saw it consistently that, you know, black people, Latinos, even Asians were not treated with the same kind of compassion and empathy that white people were. And I think it was because a lot of, a lot of the clinicians, because mainly these were white people serving the diverse community, and this is the problem in education right now. You know, there are more people of color, more kids of color in the United States in the schools than there are white kids. The white kids are actually a minority. But who are the teachers? The teachers are mainly white, so they, they don't have the same depth of understanding of the culture of, of this, these diverse groups. I think the same thing is, is, is prevalent in hospitals and, and wellness centers with the people who are practicing. The more diverse group we have, the more likely we are to understand the people we're servicing. And I think that is a problem in the medical community right now, although I think it's changing slowly. You know, we see more female doctors. We see more people of color who become physicians and nurses. But it's still overwhelmingly, at least when I was there, which was not very long ago, it's still overwhelmingly a white male profession. And, you know, the suicide rates among female doctors are four times as high as they are among male doctors because they're treated differently. And I saw this consistently when I was in the hospital. You know, males seem to get more of what they want, the male doctors, and the female doctors are, were sort of seen as subservient, and they really had to struggle to be on the same footing as male doctors by having a voice and, and standing up for themselves. When, you, when you're talking about empathy, do you notice a difference with the male doctors or nurses uh, compared to the female doctors or nurses? Who has more empathy? Well, it, it, it's interesting because if you follow early studies, like kindergarten studies, boys and girls have about the same 
level of empathy. You see boys hugging other boys. You see them being very affectionate. Our youngest daughter is a kindergarten teacher, and she, she will say that, you know, when the kids are in kindergarten, you can see that there's empathy from both genders. By the time they're in the third or fourth grade, you see differences. And I said, well, what are the differences you see? She said, it depends on the fathers. She said, when you see the fathers, when a little boy in kindergarten goes to hold his daddy's hand and the, and the father shuns and pushes his hand away because he wants the kid to be more macho and tough, you can see that that empathy is going to go underground. And by the time that young boy is in third or fourth grade, you don't see much of it. Where girls are rewarded more for being compassionate, open, and to be more affectionate, and it's approved of. So, we, you know, male and female have the same empathy neurons we're born with. But if, if it's not practiced, it's like an unused muscle that atrophy. You know, a lot of my work in my my leadership and communication groups is I often add a male and people will tell me or a wife will tell me my husband doesn't have the empathy gene. But by the time they leave, <coughs> you see that their empathy is uncovered. And a lot of times my focus with people, especially with men who have hidden that empathic tendency, not to point out what's wrong with them, but to uncover what's always been right with them. And I, I help men learn how to listen empathically and to slow down and not be so focused on achievement, but rather start to value the relationships they have in their life. And you see that empathy is then released more so. Well, who is more empathic? Well, you know, women tend to be more sympathetic, but, but empathy isn't, sympathy rushes into console where empathy is a slower process that takes time. I think generally speaking, I would say women are more empathic. But I also think that men can want to be so if they're in the right environment. Is this something that should be taught or, or encouraged to be brought out more when these people are in, in university and college being, becoming doctors and nurses? You know, I think empathy and diversity training should be in, in, in early education, middle school, high school, college, and certainly in medical school, yes. The problem with diversity training is it's very brief so that there's not enough continuity where those changes can be made. But yes, I think empathy training, look, I believe that empathy is the one capacity that can determine how successful you are professionally and personally. Now, how can you be successful in, in overall if you don't have empathy, if you don't even understand what your customers want or need? You know, good salesmen, great salesmen, people who have successful businesses, they know how to enter the world of their customers. And what happens in great marriages or great parents? They know how to enter the world of their children or their spouses. So empathy is a capacity that the more you grow the range of empathy, as we saw with the studies about communities and nations, that people are happier. They, they have a more diverse group of friends. They are not afraid to be out in the world or to interact with people that seem different to them on the surface because they find the common ground. How do you think that we are going to be able to lessen the prejudices in our societies? Well, I think if we're committed to developing empathy during, in our schools, and if we, if we demanded empathy from our politicians and from leaders within the corporate world and beyond, then our society would experience a shift from exclusion and a fear of difference to a deep appreciation for diversity and diverse ideas. So I think we all have to ask ourselves, what stereotypes did we accumulate over the years? You know, commit, commit yourself to a journey of uncovering the truth about yourself and other people. 
and, and be part of making a world based on compassion for all rather than a world based on small-minded perspectives that limit the potential of many for the favor of a few. You know, the more we encounter others, those, those who seem different on the surface, the more we find out about who we truly are. So I, I have to ask a couple questions um, in regards to the Black Lives Matter and the demonstrations that have been going on recently. There's, mm-hmm, been, mm-hmm. there's been so many um, statues that have been uh, disrupted. Um, they've been damaged. They've been then taken completely away. Um, Hans Christian Haig, he was an abolitionist, yet in a, a BLM demonstration, the statue was destroyed how is this how is this bringing benefit to the the black lives matter movement when when he was for absolving slavery i i'm i'm missing points I, I, here yeah i think what what's happened is that we're now generalizing to all statues and it's the same okay. kind of prejudice that exists when we generalize to and do I feel that certain statues should be down and should be talked about in terms of do they, are they people of value and were they people that supported slavery and racism? Yeah, I can. I certainly understand why they should be down. That doesn't mean all statues should be. Do I wish that they would be done in a violent way? No, I don't. <coughs> I think part of the frustration, though, is that that black people have not been heard in terms of. The, the idealization of certain people that supported racism and their frustration has grown over many years. Mm-hmm. But ideally, if we were a society that's civil, we would have discussions, Congress would have discussions, and we would decide which statues, which people supported racism and there shouldn't be idealized. Mm-hmm. And those statues should come down, but not all. Then, then we're getting into a violent aspect of, of protest, which is not healthy. Yeah, And I think a lot of, you know, we, we know from studies, too, that people were being polled and people, journalists have investigated that a lot of the, the violent behavior is being fueled by white supremacists to try to show how violent black people are. So there's a lot of prejudice involved in this that's confusing the public. Mm-hmm. Do I think the protests are positive in general? Yes, because, you know, there are more white people in these protests than there ever has been before. Yes. I think that's a very positive sign. Yes, it is. What do you also think of the the food rebranding and the relabeling that's going on? Do you think that that plays an important role in the reduction of racism? I think anything we can do to show those of color that we understand the suffering they've been through and we do not want to continue it in any way is worthwhile looking at. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying every single thing, but I think anything that implies people of color being less than should be looked at thoroughly and thoughtfully and and possibly changed if it implies discrimination in any way or form. Is there anything um, that you would encourage people to do in order to um, diminish uh, racism if they feel that they have racism against people? I, I would encourage all people to don't generalize don't demonize and don't make assumptions about groups of people without fact. Whether it's black people, Latino people, whether it's people of different religions, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, don't generalize, don't demonize, and don't make assumptions without facts. You know, prejudice thrives when objective facts are ignored. So learn the truth. 
And don't assume, as I said earlier, that any one person represents any, an entire group because it's not true. That is not a fact. There's unique differences among every group. There's unique differences among every, in every family. You know, people often ask me, how come my brother and sister, we grew up with the same parents, but we, we have such different personalities. Doesn't that show us that everyone is unique, even in, one, in one's own family? Absolutely. And on that, uh, Dr. C, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. If there is anyone who would like to get in contact with you, can you please let them know um, what your website is as well as your Twitter handle, please? Well, my website is balanceyoursuccess.com. My Twitter handle is docapc. Okay. And where are your books? And I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn under my name. Okay, good. Where are your books located at if anyone wanted to, wanted to find your books, which I recommend they do? Oh, they're all on Amazon. Um, the, the Diversity Book and The Soulful Leader are both on Amazon currently in uh, ebooks and paperback. Okay, wonderful. Um, again, thank you for coming today. Um, I really appreciated it. I think there's so much more that we could talk about, and maybe we can do that in future shows. I hope so. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed interacting with you. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of my listeners today, thank you for tuning in. I'll be back again next week. And until then, stay safe and stay well. Thank you for joining us for your daily dose. Be sure to tune in again next week on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for another edition with your host, Doreen Doucette. We'll see you then.